Oh, hello there. Don't mind me. I was just changing my aura from blue to pink. But come in, come in, and welcome to another enlightening episode of Chatting Tonight with me, Mystical Margot, and all of my aligned chakras. Tonight's episode, we're going to see what we can cobble together from some random bullshit generators. We may also dabble in the dark art of metaphysics. <laughs> because as my spiritual guru once said to me, we may be fellow travelers in our soul tribe throughout many lives. So light your abundance candle. I'll light my abundance candle. Yes, Sonia, that's exactly what I was saying. I am calm. I am peace. I am calm. I am peace. Anyway, namaste for a little bit, won't you? Before we begin to begin, let's begin by reionizing the electrons of the new age bullshit generator. And together we can realize that nothing is impossible. Life is a constant. To go along the vision quest is to become one with it. Power is the richness of sharing and of us. The future will be a cosmic flowering of awareness. Imagine an evolving of what could be. Soon, there will be an unfolding of non-locality, the likes of which the grid has never seen. Today, science tells us that the essence of nature is health. Being is the driver of guidance. The goal of molecular structures is to plant the seeds of growth rather than delusion. It is in maturing that we are awakened. It is a sign of things to come. The goddess will clear a path toward advanced coherence. You must take a stand against desire. The canopy of health is now happening worldwide. It is time to take the self-actualization to the next level. We must synergize ourselves and beckon others. Let us expand on that thought with a second reionizing of our electrons. Love requires exploration. You and I are storytellers of the infinite. Will is a constant. Traveler, look within and synergize yourself. We are in the midst of a self-aware refining of truth that will let us access the cosmos itself. Reality has always been beaming with dream weavers whose lives are opened by learning. Who are we? Where on the great myth will we be recreated? Today, science tells us that the essence of nature is guidance. Consciousness consists of biofeedback of quantum energy. Quantum means an 
invocation of the sacred. Nothing is impossible. Without space-time, one cannot exist. You may be ruled by suffering without realizing it. Do not let it destroy the birth of your story. The complexity of the present time seems to demand an evolving of our dreams if we are going to survive. Health is the growth of knowledge and of us. We are at a crossroads of energy and turbulence. Humankind has nothing to lose. Throughout history, humans have been interacting with the world via sonar energy. Now, because everything I learned, I've learned from Schoolhouse Rock, I learned that three is a magic number. So let us take this time to reionize our electrons for the third time on our new age bullshit generator so that we can learn that the dreamscape is electrified with morphogenetic fields. Nothing is impossible. We vibrate, we reflect, we are reborn. The uprising of learning is now happening worldwide. Where there is selfishness, growth cannot thrive. Ego is the antithesis of will. Only a indigo child of the totality may bring about this network of non-locality. Imagine an awakening of what could be. Shakti will remove the barriers to sublime empathy. This quest never ends. The infinite is calling to you via fourth dimensional superstructures. Can you hear it? How should you navigate this quantum quantum soup? Although you may not realize it, you are holistic. Without self-actualization, one cannot grow. We are at the crossroads of fulfillment and dogma. We are in the midst of a heroic awakening of divinity that will enable us to access the planet itself. Throughout history, humans have been interacting with the Nexus via pulses. So this kind of smiling thing is, it? what's it smiling for? Is it some great cosmic joke I've not been let in on? What is it? <laughs> I have found my inner self. The great Shiva cow within. My deep-rooted pagan woman that lies in us all. No, not in me. I don't think she's Yes, you will find her. Feel it. Feel the great transmugrance. From my essential oils are passing into you. Yes. They're flowing. Yes. Can you feel them? No, but I can smell them. I honestly... My womb is flowing. Yeah. Can you feel it filling your empty holes? Pulsations. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just that I don't think this is quite what I'm looking for. I could squat saggy-titted over some forest luhole waiting for the sun to come up while the men go off for hunting down the pub. I'm sorry. Let me dance the sheen of healing dance. Look, I just don't think that the sort of person I 
making corn bloody buggery dollies The Sri Bhagwan Risha sandal. Let us worship it. <laughs> For God's sake, let me just kill the whales. Okay, while I can still feel your electrons reionizing, like right through this podcast, like I, I can feel it. Ooh. If I didn't tell you guys that those were coming from the new age bullshit generator, do you think that maybe I could have booked some classes, say maybe at like the learning annex or I don't know, Kelsey Patel's like Reiki studio? What do you guys think? Because I feel like they seemed pretty legit, which is kind of scary. Although I'm wondering now if there's maybe like a romance novel bullshit generator because That seems like a really fucking easy way to make some money. You know what I mean? You may have noticed, that's the politest way that I can put this, the lower quality uh, acoustics in this episode as opposed to the regular low quality uh, recordings that I normally have. You know, the ones where you're in on the joke. This time the joke is on me because my newer iPhone took a enormous shit and I was regulated to using my old broken ass iPhone 8 Plus to record this episode. Now, we're coming in on an ad and I'm assuming with the massive amount of plays that I'm going to get for this wildly unpopular podcast and the numerous five-star reviews that will be afforded to me that soon I shall be able to upgrade my studio. So without further ado, here's, well, me. Now, some of you who may have already been following me in my how do I say this, what I choose to publicize journey, know that when I attended the whole college scene at 16 years old, yes, this is true, my very first major was philosophy. Until I realized, like, what what was the pinnacle of that degree? You know, you definitely need a PhD. So then what? You're, what, a, a philosopher in the late late 1980s early 90s do you know what I mean like what's that a professor you know with the hassle of having to continuously be published I mean I've seen who's afraid of Virginia Woolf pass anyway when you're a philosophy kind of girl or guy and you also appreciate the psychological aspects of philosophy I I digress here maybe I should have stuck with it anyway Oh, and she rambles. Anyway, when you love philosophy, you do find that you have some favorite philosophers that, that sort of speak to you. And some of mine have been Sartre, you know, Kierkegaard, William James, and of course, Nietzsche. And because of this love for philosophy, um, I often find my thoughts going back to it whenever I hear the term existential threat, you know, I mean, normally that's attached to climate change bullshit, but I prefer it my way. And it's meaning relative to the 
human condition. And with that, without further ado... Yo, I don't think we should talk about this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to talk about or trying to say. Come on, it's a part of life. Come on, let's talk about metaphysics. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things existentially. Let's talk about metaphysics. In simplest terms, metaphysics is the study of the most fundamental concepts about beliefs. Things like being, existence, purpose, causality, free will, you get the drift. All knowledge and value is based upon the definitions of these concepts. Metaphysics is concerned with concepts like being and time, which are critical to an understanding of physics, the universe, and ultimately our place in it. Over the centuries, problems not originally considered metaphysical were added to metaphysics, but more noticeably, several problems for centuries considered metaphysical have now been spun off into their own subdisciplines within philosophy. So things like philosophy of religion, philosophy of mind, philosophy of perception, the philosophy of language, and the philosophy of science, and others take up rather fundamental questions which otherwise would have been a direct part of metaphysics say during the medieval philosophy period. With the decline of metaphysics, at least in this country, the relations between philosophy and religion have grown more distant. A greater circumspection of philosophy in their domain is illustrated well by a story told of the great American philosopher and psychologist, William James. He was being teased by a theological colleague who said to him, a philosopher is like a blind man in a dark cellar looking for a black cat that isn't there. Yes, said William, and the difference between philosophy and theology is that theology finds the cat. Look at Brad over here with the big brain. There is, however, one important field in which it might be suspected that they would still compete, and that is the field of morals. For is it not the philosopher concerned with morals? For is it not the philosopher concerned with values? And by and large, we still find ourselves still at home in the moral climate of liberal humanism, which was fostered by the Enlightenment and developed, anyhow, theoretically, by the 19th century utilitarians. The main difference is that we are more concerned with social welfare and less with the virtues of individual self-reliance. Being no longer quite so sure that God is on the side of the big battalions, we are less content, even in practice, to let the devil take the hindmost. But this is a welcome shift in emphasis rather than a fundamental change of principle. The recognition of the autonomy of morals on the one hand, and on the other, the continued adherence to a well-established set of moral values, have led to a certain narrowing of the scope of moral philosophy. It concerns itself less with the question what our duties are, and more with the question what our talk about our duties means. This is primarily a matter of establishing the character of moral concepts and determining their relation to one another and to the concepts of other kinds. 
In itself, this field is fairly restricted, but it does broaden out into the philosophy of mind. We have to try to find out exactly what is comprised in the idea of human action, to analyze the concepts of motive and intention, to bring out the psychological and other factual assumptions which underlie our ascriptions or disclaimers of moral responsibility. These questions are by no means easy, neither are they lacking in theoretical interest. But if someone has come to moral philosophy in the hopes of being shown a way of life, they may perhaps strike him as a trifle abstract. However, even in this sphere, abstract problems can have practical importance. The most obvious example is the problem or set of problems relating to the freedom of the will. This preoccupation with the analysis of concepts, though it perpetuates a philosophical tradition, which at least goes back to Socrates, is sometimes held against contemporary philosophers. They are reproached with fighting shy of the grand questions, the nature of reality, the meaning of life. For there can be no meaning to life except the meaning that we give it. But this is a function of our values, and I suggest that our present need is not for new principles, but rather for the diffusion and wider application of those that we already profess. And as for the nature of reality, there is, after all, no other way of discovering what the world is like than by exploring it. But here, science holds the field. As we have seen, there is a call for a philosophical interpretation of scientific theories, but an attempt to usurp the function of science, to proceed by some other method than that of formulating hypotheses and testing them by observation can yield nothing of factual significance. That philosophers look at these larger questions is therefore to their credit. But while it is no doubt a mark of grace to abstain from meddling in other people's concerns, it hardly constitutes a profession in itself. Either philosophy is merely masquerading as an academic discipline, or there must be some range of questions which make it especially equipped to answer. At this point, I can think of no better way to proceed than by giving examples, and the first example which I shall choose is that of the philosophical approach to the question of reality. I have just said that it is vain for philosophy to compete with science in trying to depict and explain the world as we find it. But this does not mean that the question of reality raises no problems for it at all. These problems are, however, of a special character. They are concerned not straightforwardly with what there is, but rather with what we say there is and the reasons why we say it. In other words, they bear on our criteria of reality. Let me illustrate this at the most fundamental level. All our knowledge of the world in which we find ourselves is ultimately based on sense perception. We tend to take it for granted that through sense perception, we become aware of physical objects which exist independently of our perceiving them. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. We think that for reasons of perspective or some peculiarity in the physical medium or some disorder of our perceptual organs, these objects may appear different in some respects from what they really are, but that normally they are what they appear to be. We conceive them uh, as persisting unperceived in very much the same form as that in which we perceive them. These real objective physical things are contrasted with our no less real but subjective mental states and with the unreal objects 
or events of our dreams, delusions, and imaginings. But now it may occur to us to inquire a little more deeply into these assumptions. What exactly are the marks by which we distinguish the mental from the physical? What grounds can we have for supposing that the things which we perceive continue to exist when we are not perceiving them? And even if this can be established, what grounds have we for supposing that they persist in anything like the same form? In what sense, in any, can it be maintained, for example, that things preserve their colors when no one is seeing them? And in general, what are the criteria by which we distinguish the properties which things really have from those which they only appear to have? By what means can we distinguish real things at all from the figments of our imagination? The attempt to deal with these questions gives rise to different philosophical theories of perception. Thus, it has been maintained by many eminent philosophers that perception primarily consists in our having sense impression, more commonly nowadays called sense data, which do not exist otherwise than as the momentary contents of private sensations. The question then arises how, on the basis of these private, fleeting sense data, we can arrive at any knowledge of a public, enduring physical world. And one answer which has been given to it, that the physical objects are constituted by sense data. As John Stuart Mill put it, the theory is that things are nothing more than permanent possibilities of sensation. The criterion of reality would then be one of coherence. We regard perceptions as delusive when they present us with sense data which do not fit in with the general system. This theory has the merits of economy, but it plainly encounters very serious difficulties. In particular, it threatens to imprison each of us within a circle of his own ideas. For other people are known to me only through my perceptions of their bodies. But if, so far as I am concerned, their bodies are nothing but constructions out of my sense data, it is not clear how I can consistently regard them as subjects possessing sense data of their own. Neither is it clear how these wholly independent sets of sense data constitute a common physical world. On any view, there is a problem about one's knowledge of other people's experiences, but for a theory of this kind, it is especially acute. An alternative theory, which tends to find favor with amateurs of science, is that we do not perceive physical objects as they really are, but only the effects of their action upon us. On this view, our ground for believing in the physical world is purely inferential, Physical objects are postulated as the causes of our sense data, and they are credited with whatever properties contemporary physics attributes to them. This theory draws some support from scientific accounts of perception, insofar as they establish that the way in which physical objects appear to us depends not only on our own constitution, but also on the perceptual medium and on the physiological and psychological condition of the observer. But it too faces the difficulty which besets any theory which takes sense data for its starting point. It has to explain how we can ever get beyond them. 
The trouble with the causal answer is that it is not at all clear how we can be justified in believing in a causal relation, one party to which the physical object is never itself observed. In the face of this difficulty, the modern tendency has to been to give up the concept of the self-datum, which was never very adequately defined, and return to the naive realism of common sense. There is then no problem of accounting for our knowledge of the physical world, since it is assumed that physical objects are directly given to us in perception, and that one in the same physical object is presented in this way to different observers. Even so, our right to make these convenient assumptions has to be vindicated and a way has to be found of reconciling the naive realist view that we commonly see things as they really are with the scientific facts which, at least on the face of it, appear to show that what we see is transmuted by the process of seeing it. The introduction of sense data may have been a mistake, but it was not a wanton mistake. The considerations which led to it have still somehow to be met. So let's talk for a second about metaphysics and common sense. If we go by appearances, it can hardly be disputed that metaphysics is nearly always in conflict with common sense. This is most obvious in the case of the metaphysician who professes to find a logical flaw a contradiction or a vicious infinite regress in one or other of the ways in which we commonly describe the world and so comes to such startling conclusions as that time and space are unreal or that nothing really moves or that there are not many things in the universe but only one or that nothing which we perceive through our senses is real or wholly real or that there is no such thing as matter, or no such thing as minds. It is, however, also true of those who maintain not that the features which common sense ascribes to the external world are unreal, but that they are dependent upon our consciousness of them, that space and time are merely forms of human intuition, or that none of the things which we classify as physical objects exist except for when they are being perceived, or that the world is my idea. Even philosophers who wish to disassociate themselves from metaphysics often advance theories which are shocking to common sense, as that there are no private experiences, or that everything that exists is constructed out of sense data, or that no one ever does anything of his own free will, or that the past is determined by the future as much as the future by the past. In the eyes of many contemporary philosophers, the fact that such assertions do conflict with common sense is sufficient to condemn them. This is something of a new departure in the history of philosophy, where common sense has not, on the whole, been treated with very much respect. It is mainly due to the work of G.E. Moore, who looked at metaphysics with the devastating simplicity and candor of the child in the Hans Andersen story of the Emperor's Clothes. His technique was to take metaphysical assertions at their face value and show how extraordinary their implications were. Thus, he pointed out that if time is unreal, it follows that nothing ever changes or decays or grows, that a man's birth does not precede his death, and indeed that almost every would-be empirical proposition is false, since they nearly all imply that something happens before or after or simultaneously with something else. If matter is unreal, then the stars and the sun and the earth and everything in it, including human beings themselves, are as mythical as unicorns or gorgons. It also follows that if such theories are true, nobody holds them. For if matter is unreal, 
then there are no metaphysicians. And if time is unreal, then nobody ever makes a statement or acquires a belief. So again, if the world is my idea, it follows that it came into existence with my birth and will disappear at my death. If things exist only when they are perceived, then unless we rely on the perpetual vigilance of a problematic deity, we have to conclude that they are constantly popping in and out of existence, as well as holding that they are never has been and never will be a time at which the universe fails to contain sentient beings. If space and time are merely forms of human sensibility, it follows that the universe is coterminous with the existence of the human race. This result may not be so ludicrous as that of holding that space and time are unreal, but can any sane man seriously believe it? If it is interpreted as meaning that the thing only appears to be real, then we have to conclude without qualification that it is not real. If what it is meant is that the thing really appears, then we have to conclude without qualifications that it is real, though here we may allow for the possibility of its appearing under some disguise. In neither case is any provoso made for any halfway stage. But these are the only natural interpretations of the curious expression, real as an appearance, and we are not given any other. It is, however, debatable whether we ought to equate the meaning of concepts in quite this straightforward fashion with the states of affairs to which they are understood to apply. Perhaps it is not of very great importance what meaning we decide to attach to the rather vague word meaning, but it would be a mistake to insist on cutting concepts off entirely from their theoretical background. We are in something of a dilemma here because we want to reject a way of looking at the world which seems to us absurd or intelligible, but at the same time, we do not want to say that everything which is asserted by those who take this point of view is false. Thus, if the members of a primitive tribe attribute every natural occurrence to the moods of mumbo-jumbo, we have no doubt that they are utterly deluded. Nevertheless, we do not want to deny their ability to detect that it's raining, even though they see the rain as the expression of mumbo-jumbo's grief. Accordingly, we distinguish the fact which they apprehend as well as we do from the ridiculous explanation they give of it. And then, if we are very tough-minded, we may go on to say that all they really mean by their talk of mumbo-jumbo's grief, though of course they do not know it, is that it's just raining. But any anthropologist will regard this rightly as a serious misinterpretation. We are imposing on them a distinction which could never occur to them to make. I think that we can even make sense of the metaphysical doctrine that things which are ultimately unreal are nevertheless real as appearances. We have seen that when this sort of talk is taken literally, it can be easily made to seem ridiculous. The metaphysician is forced into the impossible position of maintaining both that some concept is self-contradictory and that it has application. But the explanation is, I suggest, that he is reacting in the same way to our ordinary systems of beliefs, as I supposed in my example that the anthropologist would react to the talk of the believers in mumbo-jumbo. He would regard the idea of mumbo-jumbo's grieving as nonsensical, but recognize that in their system it did correspond to a fact, namely the fact that he would describe by saying that it was raining. 
It has recently become the fashion to claim in defensive metaphysics that even though it does not yield us any knowledge in the sense of establishing true propositions, it can afford us valuable insights. It is, however, not very easy to see what these insights can be or why they are valuable if they are not expressible as truths. Perhaps what is meant is that it is illuminating to be made to look at the world in a radically different fashion from that to which we are accustomed. The fact that eternal questions can be raised allows us even to tolerate such metaphysical assertions as that it, it is we who bring time into the world. The implication is that reality is conditioned by our method of describing it and that it is open to us to decide what method to employ. So that in a certain sense, we do not just discover but determine what the world is like. But here again, if we are to speak of alternative methods of description, we have to make sure that they are viable, and it is hard to see how there could be any intelligible description of the world in which we did not include the category of time. Moreover, it must not be forgotten when we speak of ourselves as doing this or that, we are already operating within a conceptual system. For what are we, if not physical bodies, which occupy a position in space and time? But so long as we are operating within a conceptual system, we are committed to its criteria of reality. And then to say that we bring time into the world is to say that nothing happened before the appearance on earth of human beings, which is simply false, just as it is simply false if one is operating within a system that makes provision for physical objects to say that they do not exist when they are not perceived. The insistence that ordinary language is perfectly in order has been a very useful corrective to the wilder flights of metaphysical speculation, but if taken too literally, it can lead to our letting things go by, which might profitably be questioned and mobilizing in defense of what does not need defending. It is indeed better to tabulate the milestones along the highway of ordinary usage than to rhapsodize about the nothingness or the essence of man. But it would be a mistake to forego the more imaginative kinds of conceptual exploration merely because of the greater risk of getting lost. In philosophy, nothing should be absolutely sacrosanct, not even common sense. So what could be the role of metaphysics in your life? Because everything may not be what it seems. Life can be a broad concept and much more prominent in scope than it is. Therefore, defining it will yield many definitions depending on the viewpoint of the person describing it. For example, one may limit the meaning of life to its biological aspect, but it can quickly delve into philosophical or religious definitions. When supernatural elements start to mix in the description, life can be much larger than what we know and see and include a broader reality where life is just a tiny part. This significant, somewhat vague reality that touches the supernatural and beyond what can get explained by science is where the realm of metaphysics lie. The study of metaphysics can be abstract and may appear as pseudoscience to some, especially to those that adhere to scientific observation to explain the things around us. However, it can still be a worthwhile topic to delve into, as the scientific knowledge we humans have accumulated over time still has its limits. 
For example, science provides a clear explanation for the physical world. Everything can get perceived by our senses. However, some things can go beyond physical reality, such as the various phenomena that cannot be explained accurately by any existing law of science. These are the things that fall into the supernatural category. If you think about it, anything can fall into the paranormal category if humans cannot clearly explain them yet. Many things in the past can become supernatural for our ancestors. Still, as time passed and scientists would research and provide clear explanations for such phenomena, these things became part of the physical universe. Therefore, they can no longer be considered fictitious. However, even now, there are still things beyond explanation by what science can provide. And this is where metaphysical thinking can give us some sense in figuring out the basic nature of such abstract beings. The study of metaphysics can be pretty deep and only a few people may want to delve into it. However, it has its uses and can be pretty handy when you ponder about your existence and where your efforts and actions will go in the future. In a world full of technology and almost anything that can get explained by science, metaphysical thought still has its niche and can help you in the following aspects of your life. One, metaphysics can give you a greater sense of self-awareness. One of the areas that metaphysics deals with is the concept of being or existence. As a human being, there may come a time when you start questioning your purpose here in the world and what existing means. An existential crisis can happen when you start losing direction in life because you can't figure out its meaning, which can be utterly pointless. Metaphysical ideas can help prevent such thoughts by making you aware that you are part of something bigger and have a role in the larger side. While metaphysics will not give you a clear answer to your questions, you can at least entertain the thoughts that there can be much more to life than what you do daily and what you perceive from reality. Number two, metaphysics can establish a connection with religion and the presence of abstract entities. Religion and science can be challenging to reconcile due to differing beliefs and principles. However, science is a system of knowledge that provides truth based on observable and verifiable phenomena through our senses. On the other hand, religion also provides truths, but they may not be instantly verified, such as proving the existence of God. And this is where conflict of ideas can happen, and metaphysics can help bridge the gap. Even if you are a very scientific person, there are still limits and boundaries to what science can explain. Just consider how vast the universe is and how many unknown phenomena we have yet to see and explain. While we figure out how to explain such things, and if we can even arrive at an answer for them, metaphysics can give us some understanding of how such things may work. Metaphysical inquiry can delve into why such things exist and for what. It includes dealing with the existence of abstract beings such as God for various religions. Metaphysics can bring the physical possibility that everything in our material world may have derived from the power of abstract objects and entities as a God that forms the foundation of the greater universe. While all of these ideas may sound wholly supernatural, at least a connection and sense can develop if we entertain such metaphysical thoughts. We may not be able to explain them yet with our knowledge, but at least the idea is there. Number three, metaphysics can give you more significant direction to your life. Life can feel somewhat empty when you keep doing things daily without knowing why you must do them in the first place. 
The observable reality around us may be limited and thinking about what can happen in the future only brings uncertainty. But when you concentrate and start thinking of everything more extensive than you in terms of scope and presence until you reach the farthest reaches of the universe in your mind and consider the multitude of planets and heavenly bodies out there, your head can start to expand. Life can suddenly feel more exciting and wonderful. Metaphysical topics give you a greater perspective that everything you do and see around your life may be a tiny part of something greater and more extensive in scope. A fulfilled and happy mind can help you appreciate life for what it is, and you can be more accepting of the idea that your life here in this world is just one phase of something greater that may exist beyond your life. The physical world can be so much more significant in scope. It can be easy to dismiss the idea of applying the study of metaphysics in your life, but it can help give you enlightenment and see things from a broader perspective. The world is vast, and it becomes even grander in scope when you consider the entire universe and every other thing we don't have a clear explanation for yet. All these unexplainable things look supernatural to us. Still, if you think about it, the moment we finally have an answer or idea about them, if they ever happen, then these things will suddenly become part of the material reality. What was once supernatural now becomes science. But for now, metaphysics serves as our anchor to connect these things with seemingly grand nature to our observable world and can help us make sense of them. So before we say goodbye, by to tonight's experiment, I wanted to mention a specific book um, entitled Cosmic Consciousness by Richard Maurice Book, MD, and it's a classic investigation of the development of man's mystic relation to the infinite. And Buck describes cosmic consciousness as a higher form of consciousness than that possessed by the ordinary man. And you know how I like to kind of tie an episode up with a nice loop. I wanted to, and this goes without saying, of course, that I have provided the link to the articles that I've used and all the books that I've quoted because we all know I'm not this smart organically. So if you do have any interest in this, you can explore it further. But I bring up this tomb, and I say that it's not like a tomb like how War and Peace is like a tomb because this is only like 360-some-odd pages, but a tomb is, and I found it very difficult to process, and I had to jump around while reading it because I don't get everything. But what I found fascinating about this, well, one of the things, is that Buck believes, because of cosmic consciousness, that Francis Bacon is William Shakespeare and vice versa. And I just wanted to read to you a couple of sonnets from Francis Bacon or... Is it William Shakespeare? Because while I don't know whether to believe that or not, I do believe that you are responsible for you and your happiness and your sadness. You have free will and you have to own your own emotional responsibility because it all resides in you. And I do believe this when I say, you got this, you know? So am I as the rich whose blessed key can bring him to his sweet up-lock treasure, the which he will not every hour survey for blunting the fine point of seldom pleasure. Therefore are feasts so solemn and rare, since seldom coming in the long year set, like stones of worth they thinly placed are, or captain's jewels in the carcanet. 
So is the time that keeps you as my chest, or as the wardrobe which the robe doth hide, to make some special instant special blessed by new unfolding his imprisoned pride. Blessed are you whose worthiness gives scope, being had to triumph, being lacked to hope. What is your substance? Whereof are you made, that millions of strange shadows on you tend? Since every one hath, every one, one shade, and you but one, every shadow lend. Describe Adonis, and the counterfeit is poorly imitated after you. On Helen's cheek, all art of beauty set, and you in Grecian tires are painted new. Speak of the spring, and foison of the year. The one doth shadow of your beauty show, the other as your bounty doth appear. And you, in every blessed shape we know, in all external grace you have some part, but you, like none, none you, for constant heart. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? I mean, let's be honest. Right now, all I'm thinking of is bacon, and ultimately that it doesn't really matter what it means, as long as it sounds good. Because in the wacky world of podcasting, isn't that all that really matters? What it sounds like? Thank you all so much for taking my hand on this journey where we've lived, we've laughed, we've loved, we enlightened the fuck up, and we chatted tonight. If you take one thing from this, just remember, no matter how shitty and fucked up this world is, Sure, metaphysics plays a bit. Sure, common sense plays a lot. But most importantly, you play the best role in your life. You do. And if anything, just believe in yourself. It's the least you can do. The very least. And I so look forward to the next time where I can imagine you listening to me on another fabulous episode of Chatting Tonight. Four. Thanks, Dwell.